Barry is a world-famous neurologist, an expert in color vision, eyesight, colors, and everything else that entails. She knows all its physical and biological properties. She knows how different wavelengths of light stimulate three conical cells in the retina, and how, once the signal reaches the brain, patterns of neural activity are created, corresponding to the range of colors most people distinguish. But Mary has not seen color in her life. She was born blind. She was born with Leber's congenital amaurosis, a genetic disease that affects the retina, and in many cases, steals the vision of the infant before it's born. Everything she knows about eyesight and colors, she knows through Braille and information she has listened to. But, now here's where it gets interesting. On her 50th birthday, Mary wakes up being able to see. There's a glitch in the matrix, and she gains the miracle of sight. Mary opens her eyes and senses the rays of light pouring in for the first time, blinded in a whole new different way, like someone who has to get used to the sun after being in a movie theater for a couple hours. Mary crawls out of bed, stumbles across the room, through the hallways of her house. She grabs the threshold of her kitchen door, and the first thing she truly perceives, the first thing she sees, is a red tomato. A vibrant red. For the first time in her life, she sees something she's been an expert at for all of her adult life. And the question is, does Mary learn anything new by seeing the color? Is there anything in her experience with the tomato on her 50th birthday that had not already been captured by her previous expertise in the perception of the color red? I've given myself certain dramatic licenses, but the idea is the same one as the one Frank Jackson proposed. This story, this thought experiment rather, was thought of by the Australian philosopher Frank Jackson in 1982 to establish his epiphenomenology. A thought experiment is an inquisitive game that considers a hypothetical scenario to be able to explore different concepts and their consequences. It is a tool that is often used in the field of philosophy, as you'll discover in future episodes. Frank Jackson wanted to show, through Mary, that there are mental states like color perception that cannot be fully described by physical facts, that living something is different from being informed of it, and that there's knowledge that can only be discovered through experience. What philosophers call the argument of knowledge, in opposition to physicalism. The debate goes on to this day. But we are, for the time being, going to put words with more than five syllables aside, and we'll focus on the immediate. Starting with Mary. I guess when she first saw the color red, Mary freaked out. And this same surprise we all had when the reality of COVID sunk its hooks in our day-to-day -day lives. Because we too are experts. We know that our body will be food for worms, that time is a lottery, that fate is a constellation of accidents, and that our will only goes as far as our consciousness. We know that our institutions are built on quicksand, and that our politicians are just as useless as anyone else. They have no idea what's good for us. We all know this, and more. We knew this before 2020. And yet, when COVID-19 shone a light on all these obvious truths, we acted like Mary. Because, sometimes, if what's obvious isn't remembered, if it isn't put forth, it goes unnoticed. And other times, 
It slaps you in the face when you least expect it. One of those unexpected slaps, where the surprise hurts more than the hand itself. And we used to be experts, yes. But now we're starting to see the dominant wave of 670 nanometers as a bright and vivid red. We are observing the well-known finitude of history, history with a capital H, in person, from the window of our home. And it's frightening. It's frightening to remember how fragile the miracle of everyday health really is, and the immense value a roll of toilet paper really has. It's scary. It's scary to recognize that our life is, and always has been, an emergency. That the apocalypse happens every day. What do I mean by that? That the apocalypse, the end of our days, can happen at any time. Stop and think of all the things you do daily so not to die or to extend your life. From sleeping, eating, and drinking water, working out, looking both sides before crossing the road, or stepping on the brakes while driving. If you're in a second floor and in a hurry to get down, you don't jump out of the window, you use the stairs. And when you run down those stairs, you grab on a railing so not to fall and break your neck. Because we all know we are a lapse of concentration away from fermenting the ground beneath us. But, at the same time, we smoke, we abuse alcohol and other drugs, we have one-night stands with complete strangers and sleep next to them, like that, vulnerable and exposed, when they could well be perfect serial killers. We drive on motorcycles, helmet less, while checking our Instagram, to set an example my last Wednesday afternoon. This is the behavior of a completely crazy and incoherent being, who knows that it is mortal, but lives as if it will never die. My last Thursday afternoon, I watched Ratatouille alone for the sixth time in my life. Yes, it is a Pixar classic, but watching this cartoon for the sixth time only makes sense if I were immortal and my clock wasn't ticking. What the hell am I doing wasting my limited and precious time on that? What are you doing? The term apocalypse means to reveal or revelation. And what the end of the world reveals to you is that nature wants to kill you, and it will succeed sooner than you expect it to. It can't be any less subtle than that. It is not surprising that the apocalypse is a fantasy that was born alongside our concept of the gods, as they are two sides of the same coin. This wisdom has been codified into myths, cliches, Gospels, The Walking Dead. We gravitate towards this narrative, not because we're masochists, but because we seek comfort in the chaos, longing to give our lives the weight they deserve, because we sense that existence is fragile. Tomorrow the ground you step on swallows you whole. The sky will crush you when it falls. Civilization is a mere contract that can burn at any time or be stepped on by Godzilla. Surviving one single day during Ragnarok would be a good reason to celebrate. And so is today. Celebrating the tragic nature of life isn't frivolous. It doesn't minimize the misery. It gives it the necessary weight to be able to face it gracefully. But if life is like the end of the world, why is it so boring? We imagined that the end of our days was going to be Mad Max. And now, a year into this f pandemic... It's more like waiting three hours in a healthcare center, waiting to get tested for COVID. Because here's another secret that only those who live it know. 
The present is copious, the past is brief, and the future is always late and catches us by surprise. And we find ourselves in this weird situation, where our days are too long and our lives are so short. People struggling with a terminal illness, fighting in a conflict zone, or in the midst of a natural disaster will attest that one of the most unexpected things is the downtime, the boredom. When the passage of time takes center stage, the obvious consequence is that it acquires the presence that it has always had in secret, the power it deserves. And paradoxically, when you are aware of the notion of time and its limits, you realize it abounds, but it's decreasing second by second. Do you feel it now? So there's no time to lose. Hurry up. And it's precisely this forced haste that emphasizes the laziness of time. This question of abundance haunts us all in one scale or another, not in times of panic, necessarily. It all depends on when you give the real consideration that the temporal dimension deserves. And in this period of massive confinement, hunger has married gluttony. Not only do we have a limited activity forced on us by the coronavirus, we also have endless content at our disposal through our devices, at least in the West. Technology is not bad per se, and digital entertainment isn't new. It doesn't elude me that you're probably listening to me on your phone. It's a tool, like a gun. Unfortunately, our aim is way off. We've got countless options within the reach of our fingertips. If it's not taken advantage of, it's squandered. One universe is born every second. Another universe fades away. One is constantly in the cusp of missing out on something new. One has to sprint to stand still. This is also a problem of abundance and the impatience it creates. Again, it's a problem of time. A problem that our screens had been showing us before, before the pandemic exiled us from our day-to-day from the daily life that distracted us from our distractions, that kept us busy. Our devices already reminded us of the omnipresence of finite time before the coronavirus. The pandemic has only worsened our awareness of it. This addiction to our smartphones lies on being terrified of living in time, and even more so with ourselves. We are afraid of getting bored deliberately and start seeing the color red. Because... I repeat, when we are aware of the ephemeral quality of life, days become long and our urgency impotent. But don't despair. Luckily, we already have a counterintuitive solution to survive in times of emergency, like life itself. Take your time. This advice is not new. In fact, it's an interpretation of Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem is a literary motif that comes from a verse, from a poem written by the Latin poet Horace, which goes something like this. Seize the day, because tomorrow is uncertain. But as good philosophers, we must ask ourselves, what does he mean by seize the day? I personally like the answer given by the character Jantaru in the novel, aptly titled The Plague, written by the French philosopher and Nobel Prize in Literature, Albert Camus. Camus understood novels as philosophy translated into images, and although he does not allude to Carpe Diem specifically, it is not an accidental wisdom. 
Quote. Question. How can one manage not to lose time? Answer. Experience it at its full length. Means. Spend days in the dentist waiting room on an uncomfortable chair. Live on one's balcony on a Sunday afternoon. Listen to lectures in a language that one does not understand. Choose the most roundabout and least convenient routes on the railway, and naturally, travel standing up. Cue at the box office for theaters and so on and not take one's seat, etc. End quote. Jesus, that's beautiful. Chantaru Camus is telling us here not to ignore the quote-unquote trivialities because life lies precisely in the in-between spaces of the big life events we plan. Our marriage is not our wedding day, but how we greet our partner every day of the week. Oof. And this, too, is the secret to keeping your sanity during the end of the world. Because at any time, if you're lucky, life punches you in the gut, revealing the vast dimension of time. The inability to equate the purpose of the hours with their urgency ends up confirming what we all sense, that we waste our time. In the face of this vital emergency, the remedy is not easy, even if it is a simple act of attention. It's the onerous decision to be present, to bet that the hidden transcendence that each moment offers is better than the alternative, that making the effort to experience life is better than the passive knowledge of unconsciousness, and to be patient and to trust it is so. Of course, we all wish for an ecstatic life, our life a work of art, a handful of extraordinary, interconnected, memorable moments that we would be willing to live over and over again. But despite our best efforts to hold on to every single minute, the truth is that most of our lives, we forget almost as they happen. Maybe today won't go into the photo album after all, because our life is like a photo album with more blank pages than photographs, some crooked, sporadically thrown onto it, mostly blurry, others scattered with no rhyme nor reason, and a dozen upside down. Some photos of you signed in other people's albums and vice versa. Find yours. Take it off the shelf, dust it off, and hold it tight. Bless your blank pages, whose shape shapes your life, whose tireless, silent labor keeps your precious photos up and shows them to the world. The idea here is not to love the highlights. When just scoring a touchdown, anyone can get lost in the moment. Anyone can take his time. It doesn't even have to be a choice, really. To be present is involuntary at a party, on the fortieth hour of a bender. The effort lies in writing an ode to those forgotten times. Because just as it is automatic to live the great moments of ecstasy, it is as easy to fall into unconsciousness in the face of the drudgery of routine. It's the mornings with a mean hangover, getting groceries at the supermarket, when you have to choose. After passing a third time down the same aisle, Stupefied by the fluorescent light telling you in Morse code how much it hates you. Rubbing shoulders with other useless people who decided to go shopping first thing in the morning to congest only the aisles you want to go through yourself. There, dragging that cart with that wheel that sings only for you. There, with the inanimate clerk, more machine than person, that must love this podcast because she's really taking her time. There. That's where you choose. 
you can look for a lifesaver in the empty stimulus of your phone, in the relief of cursing the supermarket, the customers, the mother who gave birth to the clerk at the cash register. You can demand to be rescued by your unconsciousness, and it will be eager to please. It's understandable to want to filter situations like this through the guise of ignorance, to not live, so to really not know. We already do enough charging on, don't we? People need an escape from their circumstances, especially now. Unemployed, grandma's dead, where have our savings gone? Wake us when it's all over, please. This mandate is not the Midas touch, at all, nor purports to be. The idea is not to eradicate all suffering. It's to recognize that surrendering to the lazy whims our organism devises to evade pain is like fighting a fire by injecting oneself with anesthesia, standing there, still, while you smell the flesh burn. There's already enough tragedy for us to make it worse with neglect. Giving up not only worsens misfortune, it makes it something new, sinister, something wasted. The recommended attitude here is not the when life gives you lemons trope. Nope. It doesn't mean that. It means witnessing the tragedy of life with all the senses one possesses. Because unfortunately, the miserable squander their misery. Yes, curse any god who listens if necessary. If you have to despair, may your desperation be biblical. If you hate, hate deliberately. Make your envy justify the feeling. Give it reason. Give it a name to the demon that stirs up your stomach and twists your throat. Don't let it be an envy produced by the shame of complacency, but an envy with determination, the genesis of a great adventure. The act of paying attention is immoral, useful in all human registers. All that being so, when one is master of time and not his servant, one begins to consider righteous alternatives, invisible to lazy eyes. In the hangover, in the tedium of the supermarket, when one is contemporary to his life, there will be no other option than to, seeing such a slab reflected on the counter, laugh at oneself, look at the other customers that invade one's space, and feel some sort of brotherhood, estimating that if they are looking for the same things, it's because they must lead lives quite similar to one's own. More than one is probably fighting off a loud hangover, too. Once there, if one is attentive, it's impossible to see the clerk as an inanimate object, and the generous time she takes is time she gives one to think, to think how lucky one is, not working while on a crippling hangover. All of these obvious reasons fly by, unnoticed, when you are on autopilot, driven by the sum of your urges. If mere impulse rules over you, you won't be able to consider other alternatives to, on the train, coming home tired from work, beating a teenager with his boombox blasting techno. If it has to be done, let it be an intentional assault, not an involuntary reaction that prevents you from actually listening to the music and being pleasantly surprised you enjoy it, enriching the journey back home. On a dating app, when flirting with a new candidate, don't let another conversation with another potential partner divide the proper care you're giving the first one, devaluing both future love interests. While watching Netflix, is it time to read your news feed or to text your father about last night's game? This concept is not about giving life more time, 
but giving time more life, and about understanding that the frenzy of imbuing every moment with significance is what ends up killing it. The captivating thing about this practice of living in time is that in calmness and lies peace. It is to accept that life, with all its sorrows and glories, with all its dull and euphoric moments, is better to experience it than to submit oneself to the inertia of the cosmos. Not because you only live once, no, but because you only die once. You live every day, every hour, and every second of every minute. So don't rush it. Piano, piano. Take your time. Get down from there, up in your head. Stop living in the past and in the future, imagining conversations you'll never have, solving problems that will never happen, writing the thank you speech of a trophy that doesn't exist, awarded to you by people you'll never meet. Come down to the present, where it's cold and smells like feet, in a hospital's waiting room, waiting for a coronavirus test. It doesn't matter that no one will sing songs about this instant, that it lacks purpose from an epic point of view. This moment is here for you, an experience that exists simply by living it, for its own sake. Because life isn't something that's happening to you, it's happening for you. It isn't even so much something that happens as something you do. Again, this is something we all know deep down, but are often not aware of. In keeping with our metaphor, we are blind neurologists, experts in color vision. That's why sometimes we cut the stem of a few roses and put them in water on the kitchen table for all of us to admire, because we all love flowers. When, if we really loved them, we wouldn't kill them, we'd water them. Because just like life, more than feeling, love is a verb, they are actions. And love has also been splattered with the question of abundance and time by the tendency for unconsciousness and the need to decipher the obvious. Like the vase of flowers resting on the kitchen table, possession and exclusivity, desire and beauty have always been part of what we talk about when we talk about love. But, in our fast-paced contemporary culture, these words are also being misrepresented. For example, as for the interpersonal connection that every human yearns for, it doesn't have to be romantic, necessarily, our planet has never been so small, our anxiety so great. Where it's easier to find people, it's harder to really get to know them. And a lot of people worry about having relationships instead of being in them. So sadly, honeymoons and orgies are getting scarcer. But I'm getting too distracted with lovemaking. Not the love you do, the watering the flowers daily, the accumulation of countless unsexy ways, day after day, which honor the old Spanish aphorism. You don't give to whom you love, you love whom you give to. Like the simple love of how you greet your neighbor when you cross paths coming home, practicing with your lover the morning choreography of mutual aids to start the day, petting a dog that comes happily to greet you thanking the supermarket clerk for her service. It's whispering in your partner's ear, I'll go, sleep, and tiptoeing to comfort the little one's cries. That's the act of loving, the act of living. That's what taking your time really means. 
It means doing the work of being aware of the little things, day in, day out, like viruses, tomatoes, and the passage of time. And time will pass. We'll overcome this pandemic. We will rebuild, as we do. And probably, the self-evident and obvious will fade again, becoming part of the furniture. It will be hard to remember what Albert Camus said, and Carpe Diem will be a nightclub in Barcelona once again. But hey, why not give it a try? And if we lose the discipline, or we are too busy getting busy, it's okay. It's not like it's the end of the world. Is it? Gracias. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or not, I'd appreciate your feedback. Being the first episode and all, it will help me improve the content, um, be it Twitter or YouTube comment section, email. And while you're at it, what are your thoughts on Frank Jackson's thought experiment? And what about the interpretation of Carpe Diem in this episode? Intense, huh? <laughs> yeah, being present every second of every minute of every hour of every day. This is obviously something to aspire to, nothing anybody can actually achieve. And perhaps it's too much. I can't swear I'm not going to see Ratatouille ever again. And I have nothing against florists. I've sent this podcast any and all platforms that would take it. I hope it reaches someone that doesn't share my last name. This podcast is also in Spanish. For all Spanish-speaking Latino Spaniards friends, if you got some value out of it, please consider supporting the podcast, be it one-time donation on PayPal, or buying a cool shirt or mask with our awesome logo. All help is appreciated, I know. I know these are trying times. Shit, I didn't want to use that phrase. Trying times. I know these are difficult times, so all cents are appreciated. And I'll invest that money to buy new equipment and better the production and the overall content of this podcast. And if you can't help right now, but you still want to support, the best thing anybody could do is to share this content, anybody you think might be interested, to continue the conversation. Thank you again. See you next time.